0: What's up, storytellers? Thank you so much to all of you who left a rating and a review for eighty-eight cups of tea. I know it's a whole process to get through all the steps, and it means the world to us that you took the time. And thank you so much to our listener with the username Writer Tori for her review. She wrote, "Executed perfectly," and gave us five stars. And continued to write, "I've been a listener since day one. This podcast is the most helpful." entertaining and personal account that I can find of authors for writers and creators everywhere. It's my favorite podcast. The energy and effort put into it is felt and she never disappoints. There are gems upon gems for writers to find in each interview. Thank you so much, Yin. Oh my gosh, Tori. Thank you so much for listening in since day one. You are awesome. And that is so nice to hear that you've been with us for these many years and it makes me so happy. And thank you so much for taking the time to leave such a thoughtful review. Before we introduce today's special guest, I wanted to share a quick update about the panel I moderated this past Saturday called Seven Asian American Authors You Should Be Reading, hosted by the New York Public Library. The brilliant idea of this wonderful gathering was the brainchild of author Stacey Lee, and the panel also featured Rhoda Bayesa, Sona Charipatra, Emily Pan, Heidi Heilig, Karuna Riazzi, and Jenny Han. I had such a wonderful time at the panel. The conversations were full of heart and felt so close to home. It meant so much to me that some of my family were able to make it, along with Moonlin and dear friends. It was extra meaningful knowing that some of our storytellers were in the audience too. I was so happy to squeeze in some hugs with those who were able to come up and say hi. For those of you who couldn't make it but were able to tune into our live stream, thank you so much for watching. The conversations and the energy of the room gave me such a high. There was so much laughter, some tears, and all eye-opening stories. In case you missed it, you can still catch the playback of our live stream by heading over to facebook.com slash Chatham Square Library. Now on to our guest, I'm honored to have author, foreign correspondent, and award-winning journalist Atia Abawi on the show. Born a refugee to Afghan parents in West Germany and raised in the United States, Atia has reported on war, conflicts, and international crises in Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, Myanmar, Egypt, Kenya, and Israel. Her first book for teens, The Secret Sky, is a critically acclaimed love story set during the war in Afghanistan and won an Amelia Bloomer Award. She was also named a publisher's weekly Flying Start, honoring debut novelists whose first book shows success and promise. Her most recent novel, A Land of Permanent Goodbyes, gives readers an unflinching look at the Syrian refugee crisis. Narrated by Destiny, this heartbreaking story of the consequences of war shows the Syrian conflict as part of a long chain of struggles spanning through time. The novel touches on the reactions of those close to the refugee crisis, from xenophobic citizens to the volunteers who are eager to help. Kirkus Reviews wrote, From award-winning journalist Abawi comes an unforgettable novel that brings readers face-to-face with a global refugee crisis. A heartbreaking, haunting, and necessary story that offers hope while laying bare the bleakness of the world. In today's episode, Atia shares the story of her parents' terrifying journey to find refuge in Germany, and why it's crucial for her to humanize the refugee crisis we see today through a land of permanent goodbyes. We discuss the pain she felt day after day researching this novel and why she made the specific choice of narrating the novel through the voice of destiny. Further into our discussion, we also learn how Atia transitioned from a journalism background of reporting straight facts to writing a novel where writers normally rely on creativity and imagination. Atia will be taking over our Instagram stories all the way from her visit to Bangkok, so be sure to follow us on Instagram at 88 cups of tea to catch her takeover. Now let's jump right into our discussion hey everyone we have Atia abawi with us today I am honored to have Atia with us on the show lots of you are very excited I've already seen you guys making noise in our Facebook group I could not be more pumped to introduce Atia to you today her first book was the secret sky a novel of forbidden love in Afghanistan and now today we're going to be talking about a land of permanent goodbyes Atia how are you I'm great thank you so much for having me I'm
1: so excited to be on the show with you
0: I am so So excited to have you on. You have no idea. You are a badass, and I know once my mom gets a hold and hears about you, she's going to go on praising you and saying, like, you see, <laughs> we need more women leaders like her. You truly are a real-life superhero, and I admire you so much. You're so sweet. You're the badass, by the way, and <laughs> I already love your mom, so thank you for that. <laughs> thank you. Let me kick it off first and start backtracking a bit. We love to learn more about backgrounds in how you first fell in love with storytelling and and I know your story is very special. Yours is more so you got into journalism first. If you can bring us back to that moment when you first remember loving reporting stories or knowing that it was an actual job, because I feel like a lot of us when we're young, we don't realize and connect that's an actual possibility. When was that for you? And how did that
1: all come about? Well, that's interesting, because I do remember being in the second grade. And you know, when you're in school, and you take school pictures, you share your school pictures, the wallet size pictures, uh, maybe this is aging me. I don't know if they do that anymore. (laughs) But I had a little notebook and I would put everyone's picture on a separate page and then write a little story about what they were going to be in the future. And one person was a race car driver. And I basically wrote a story about him and the other girl, she became a doctor and I wrote a story about her. And it was kind of like a newspaper story. And I really enjoyed it. Then I continued it in middle school for the school paper there. And then in high school, I didn't actually join the newspaper there, but I was part of the journalism class. I took journalism one, two, and then advanced placement journalism. And what's interesting, though, is I got great grades in that class. But on the last day of class before college, I had actually by then decided I want to go this route despite being told by family members that you're an immigrant, you're of a different ethnic group, you're a woman, it's going to be impossible for you to make it, you shouldn't do it. And I did listen to all of those people. But I also realized this is what I really, really want to do. So when I applied for colleges, I applied for the communications and journalism programs. But on the last day of class, my senior year of high school, my teacher, played a Citizen Kane and called everyone up one by one to ask him what they wanted to do with journalism after high school. And he was a well-respected teacher. And I remember thinking, okay, he's going to be the first adult that I tell this to because you know he's a teacher. He's going to at least encourage me. And when he sat me down and he asked me, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a journalist. I want to be a reporter. I want to go overseas. And then he just stopped right there. So I stopped talking and he said, let me just tell you, you're never going to make it. So don't even bother trying. I was
0: wait, what? Yes,
1: I was crushed, especially coming from a teacher that I had for three years of journalism and
0: that you admired and looked up to.
1: I did. Yes. And he was well known in the US. I think uh, basically his full newspaper was number one at that time. Long story short, I'm really glad I didn't let him get to me the way that he actually did in the beginning, because by then I had already got accepted into my school and I had already picked communications and it was really hard to change your major, luckily. I know, I was going to say good thing for that. (laughs) Thank God, because a 17-year-old can really be persuaded by what An adult uh, says a special teacher. But you know what? After that, it also got to a point where my parents who at first kept telling me that it's going to be impossible because of our background and it's just a difficult thing to do. You know, we were refugees, grew up as refugees and immigrants, and there are things that are a bit harder when that's how you grow up. But eventually it got to the point where your dreams no longer just belong to you when suddenly my parents were encouraging me as well when I wanted to give up. And then I realized, you know, for my parents, I'm gonna continue this dream and the harder and harder it became, the more of a challenge it was that I wanted to accomplish it. I guess, what's the saying? I kept on trucking.
0: <laughs> yes, you kept on trucking. That's for sure. I was reading and doing some research before our call, and I read and came across that your mom was pregnant with you when your parents had to leave Afghanistan. Yeah, so the Soviet
1: invasion happened in 1979 in Afghanistan, and the war began. The tanks rolled in, helicopters, uh, the war war just began to rage and both of my grandparents fathers i should have say grandfathers they were generals pre-communist regime so they were imprisoned by the communists that had taken over and they were put into solitary confinement when they waited My mother's father, when he was released, he was trained by the US military. So he found his way eventually out and made it to America. And then they waited for my dad's father to be released. And when he was released, my mom said, and this was 1981, she was uh, pregnant with me, my brother was two years old and said, Okay, your father has been released, we need to go now. And my dad said, I don't want to abandon my country, I'm not going. And then my mother said, Okay, you don't have to go. But my son, My unborn child and I were leaving. Then my dad decided, okay, fine, I'll come with you guys. Thank God for your mom. Yes, and I do thank God for that because I do always wonder what would have happened if they stayed and I see what has happened to Afghanistan and every time I try to envision what would have happened, it comes out with a very bleak ending. I honestly don't think we would be alive right now if my mother did not decide to leave.
0: Do you still have family members?
1: I do. We have family who has gone back. It's also a tribal society, so we do have members of our tribe, I guess you can say, that I met many decades later who have seen so many horrors and lived through so much. I'm surprised many of them actually survived lived under different regimes. At times, the Taliban was actually a reprieve from the Civil War, which was much more barbaric than what we know as the Taliban. That's saying
0: something. Your parents, they left in 1981, they left Afghanistan to then go to Germany. That's where you were born, right?
1: Yes, yes.
0: How was that like when it came to acceptance Hearing the stories now where it's quite horrific, where refugees aren't accepted, it's beyond heartbreaking and it's difficult to hear. For your own experiences, what was that like? Well, it's
1: interesting. And this is why I think it's a great question, because it's something that my mother has recently opened up more about in the last few years, especially with what we've been seeing on television with the refugee crises. When my parents first left, they had a traumatic story of their own just leaving, which is sometimes when she told me the story, it felt like I was watching a movie. But when they arrived in Germany, she said that there were people who were welcoming. Of course, there was the Germans who helped them settle in, found them a hotel room to stay. By hotel room, it's not really a hotel. It's kind of like a hostel, and you're sticking a family in one room and all the cooking and everything, and you share a bathroom with other families. So there were people who did help and they were so grateful for those people. And she said that she would push me in my stroller and my brother would be walking. And by then he was three. And there were some people who would see them and buy my brother an ice cream cone. And then there would be someone else who would walk by and spit in their direction. What? So it's the way it was. And it's the way it unfortunately is today as well. There are always the people who welcome. And then there are always the people who are xenophobic who are afraid and that fear sometimes turns into hate or oftentimes turns into hate. And that's a big reason why I was really motivated to write A Land of Permanent Goodbyes and base it on the Syrian refugee crisis because there's so many people going through this. And unfortunately, the fear that some people have just transforms into hate towards people who are suffering and the last thing they need is the hate or the fear because really they're the ones who are so afraid
0: it really pisses me off when they don't even want to bother to hear the stories of why there was fleeing to begin with they just assume You're coming to my place instead of understanding, wait, I need to understand what happened. No one wants to leave their home. Exactly. That's why I asked, did you have family still in Afghanistan? When you're talking about tribe, this is like a connection that's deeper than most. You have your people. Your whole world is there. So to just leave that for survival, I mean, can you also just imagine the guilt your parents also had, especially your dad, for not wanting to leave in the first place. When you mentioned that your mom had Really horrific, heartbreaking stories about actually leaving Afghanistan. If you can take us there, I would appreciate any stories that you feel most compelled to share with us. I've always actually said that if ever there was
1: a time machine and I had a chance to go in it, I would love to go back to 1970s or 60s Afghanistan to just see the place that my parents used to describe. It's nothing like what we know today. Today, it's just known as a war zone, and it is, unfortunately. And, you know, there's bloodshed all over. But when my parents grew up, it was a completely different place. My mom was wearing bell bottoms and tank tops. My uncle and his now wife, but back then girlfriend used to go on dates at the Intercontinental Hotel at the swimming pool. It was a different place. Yes, you had conservatives, but you also had people who weren't very conservative and they were living normal lives. In fact it would have been many Western countries as well. The, you know, people wore skirts, people wore tank tops. It's not the burqa that we see today. Mm-hmm.
0: And their was done yes I saw photos yeah.
1: Exactly, exactly. I mean, my mom used to have all the best designer clothes. I mean, even if you look at pictures of my grandmother, you wouldn't know if it was 1940s Afghanistan or if it was 1940s America. You honestly couldn't tell the difference. I could send you pictures if you wanted to see. It was their history. This is the foundation. This is their lives. It was the language that they spoke, they shared, their friends that they grew up with, the family that they had sleepovers with, their cousins. They would play records of the Beatles on their record players. They just had these great lives and then suddenly one day the communist regime came in, assassinated the president and 17 members of his family. It was a communist coup and they took over and then the Soviet forces came in to support the new communist regime. What was really Upsetting was when my parents decided, okay, we need to go to save our children, to save our family. We need to go because they knew that they were pigeonholed as anti communist because their fathers were generals in the government before communism came in. In fact, my dad said it was about a year every single day he was going to try to pick up his passport with the visas that they were looking for to leave. My mom was the head accountant of an airline there and she was going to use her tickets to take her family on a quote-unquote vacation because you couldn't say that you were leaving for good or else he would imprison you or not let you leave at all, ever. So my dad kept trying to get the passport, and he kept getting pushed back. And so finally, one day, someone in the office felt sorry for him and said, look, he's like, you're not getting your passports back. And he said, why not? He goes, there's someone holding it back. And my dad said, who is it? Come to find out it was his own cousin. Wait, so his Yes, it's family members turning on each other. They've opened up more about what's happened in the last few years to me about all these stories
0: was this a cousin that your dad grew up with was he close to him
1: or was oh my god so he's like a brother he was a close cousin in the afghan culture your cousins are like siblings this man had found out that my dad's father had left and gone to america and made sure that the passport office knew that if you give them a visa they're gonna leave as well so then after that my dad found someone even higher up and got that overturned and eventually got the visa back wow good on your dad yes luckily there was someone who felt sorry for him after about a year of walking back and forth and but then after that happens they had to take their flight and the first stop was Moscow, which was the capital of the Soviet Union. But before they even took off, the plane got stopped at the tarmac and the communist police came on the plane going up and down the aisle in the middle of the hot summer, looking at everyone's passports. And my mom was, said she was just terrified that my two-year-old brother then, who spoke really well, was going to let it slip that they were leaving for good. He knew that they were, but he was a two-year-old and you can't control a toddler's mouth. But luckily, my brother didn't say anything, and the plane took off, and they landed in Moscow, which was probably the scariest place to land back then. My mom said she didn't breathe easy until the plane took off from Moscow, and they knew they were out of Soviet airspace. and then suddenly she said she felt at ease. In fact, she was so stressed out, I was born with a strand of gray hair. Oh, my God. (laughs)
0: that is so crazy I got chills the entire time and I had images in my head like a movie playing I cannot even imagine the fear I think I probably would have needed to be tranquilized if i had to go through that because i would have an extreme breakdown and so much anxiety having to go through that and also keep a straight face and knowing that my toddler like you said you cannot control what children say no. they are kids two yeah. years old you know they're gonna say what they're gonna say and that's okay but then for me it's like oh my gosh what if he says something then what do i say to detract from it how, how do i distract and all of that oh my god your mom i just want to Hug your mom. She's incredible. Please pass a message on and just tell your mom. She is also a superwoman. And I'm glad she put her foot down and told your dad. No. I'm leaving (laughs) with or without you. Get it together or goodbye. Exactly. And I have no doubt, God
1: forbid, you're ever in that situation. I know you'll be able to do all the right things.
0: Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you. I think I would literally just pass out once I land safely in the next place. I'm (laughs) done. (laughs) All that anxiety. Forget it. Atiyah, thank you for walking us through that story. I, I just can't even begin to imagine what that could even be like. We need to hear more stories so that we can understand and we can see it. I want to jump back to A Land of Permanent Goodbyes. Was there one specific story or one specific family story that you met that made you want to write about a Syrian teenage boy? Was there one specific person? or Was it like a culmination of many different people's stories. It's definitely a culmination. I do remember
1: I was actually researching another book that I was going to write. And this is at the height of when we were seeing the news with the refugees, you know, flooding into the highways of Europe, trying to walk to Germany, Sweden, wherever their final destination was going to be. And I was holding my baby at that point, And he was about eight to nine months old. And I'm holding him in the comfort of my apartment where we live in Jerusalem. And I was watching other mothers holding their babies on the highways, on the sides of the highways of Europe. After they've given everything up, they've left their home and thinking, I know how I'm going to feed my son tonight. They don't know how they're going to feed their child tonight. It just crushed me. And then it made me think of my own parents and their own journey and how they've both one day woke up and their lives were just flipped upside down because of political reasons that then turned into war. I just thought to myself, this is something I have to do. So I reached out to my agent and editor and they decided, okay, if you want to write this, go ahead. And that's when I decided I was going to fly to Turkey to research uh, with the Syrian refugees there. And then I flew to Greece as well, to the island of Lesbos on the shores to research there and you meet different people from different backgrounds. No refugee is the same. They all have different stories, different upbringings, different beginnings. They come from different countries. I mean, I was in one room interviewing a Syrian man and his family. In the same room was a Kurdish woman waiting for her husband to cross and she was shivering in fear because he was supposed to have already made it. So we still don't know if her husband made it or not. It was story after story. And, you know, Moroccan families who weren't being let in are stuck there on the island, families from various places, I mean, from Africa, from the Middle East. It's not just one story. And I I try to do that in both of my books to really try to get every piece of what's going on in the country or in the region or in the situation. And compact it into this one novel to get an understanding, a better understanding for the reader, an understanding that we won't get in a 700-word news write-up or a two-minute clip that you see on the news if you even get the two minutes. Because most television stations, they let you only have a minute, maybe 45 seconds to tell a story these days.
0: Wow. When you're sharing this story, how you're interviewing in Greece, in Turkey, I would be so devastated to hear these stories. What was that process like for you, the emotional aspect, and also how you were able to approach them. Because for me, I'm like trying to imagine myself in their shoes. If I went through all that, I don't even think I would want to talk to anybody. I do get nervous
1: approaching someone who's been through so much. I mean, as a journalist, approaching anyone, whether it be in Afghanistan or on the refugee trail or going to Myanmar or anything, when you ask someone to share their personal lives, you know, you're asking for a lot. I'm glad that I'm nervous when I ask because I feel like that means I still care about the people that I'm talking to because I have seen other journalists who aren't nervous and they can be crass and they can be very apathetic to what these people have gone through. There's also the language barrier. So I can speak Persian and Dari and Farsi, but I didn't speak Arabic. Luckily, I had a friend, she flew out and met me and she spoke Arabic as she did the interpretation and whatnot. And one of the icebreakers would be that I too came from a refugee family and my parents fled many decades prior. That does open some doors. But also when people are suffering, I've noticed as a journalist who's gone to pretty devastating places and met people in devastating situations. People want to be heard. They have stories to tell, and they feel that they're being ignored by the world, that their suffering is not being listened to. So there are people who do want to talk. With the Syrians themselves, they wanted to talk, but they also wanted to protect their identity because they still had family members in Syria who they know would suffer either under the hands of the government or under the hands of the rebels or in the hands of ISIS. I should also mention that it wasn't easy to research. I mean, listening to you know the recorded interviews, looking at the pictures, doing the research, I can be very honest and say that I cried every single day doing the research for this book it's terrible and you know it's it's just so sad to know that so many people go through so much at the start of my book i talk about Tarek and his, him losing his family members. And he had these twin little brothers. Those twins are based on real twins, on a real story about these two twin boys, several months old, whose parents identified them by different colored pacifiers. And that's how you knew which twin was which twin. And both twins died in an airstrike, but you couldn't tell because they had wiped the blood off the face. And then the only way you could tell was from just a drop of blood that the hospital missed wiping off. And I think I almost feel selfish for crying during the research, but it was my only therapy to get past it and write my book. There were times I just had to push the computer to the side and let the emotions take over, get them out, and then pick my computer back up and write again. And at times I felt weak because of it. And then I decided empathy isn't a weak. No, it is so, it's one of the strongest suits that anyone could ever have. I'd like to think that too and I hope I hope more and more people choose empathy because when they don't choose that they choose fear and that's unfortunately what we're seeing.
0: Are you friends with the people that you were
1: interviewing? Yeah, I mean, some of the people, they haven't kept in touch because obviously they're busy. But some of the people, yeah. In fact, there's a young Syrian man, a doctor, actually, that I got in touch with because not only was it people that I met at the locations I went to, with the advent of social media and internet, as you were mentioning, there's so much you can do. And my only eyes and ears into Syria, especially the city of Raqqa, where ISIS was in control, was this young Syrian man and I interviewed him over WhatsApp. I'd send him my chapters and tell him, "Does this look realistic?" And then we like, "Well, that is, but you know, maybe you <laughs> should change that." Like, okay. So he was my eyes and ears, and I keep in touch with him. He's he's an interesting guy, and his wife is an interesting woman whose unfortunately father has quote unquote gone missing. by the syrian government and then he was from raqqa and then isis i mean they've gotten it from all sides so i keep in touch with him i'm so grateful for all they've done and helped me with and i remember watching something on al jazeera plus and there was a young teenage girl who got lost in the chaos and then found her way to germany and i looked for her on facebook i apparently found her aunts and i was whatsapping with her aunt in damascus who's also lovely i mean the syrian people there's just such lovely people. It's just, it's so terrible what they're going through. But even despite all of the hell they've been through, they're still very kind, hospitable, and will go out of their way to help you.
0: I love hearing that. It's so incredible because one of my best, best, best friends, he's mixed. He's got so much in him and he's the (laughs) most beautiful creature ever. He said that his dad's side is part Israeli and part syrian and yeah. i've met his family and they're the sweetest i love that they're Aww. so open they're like "Come <laughs> eat more. they're just so welcoming and reminds me of my asian family Aww. my best friend's like well we are asian don't you forget That's true. i'm asian too <laughs> yeah see there we go when you were writing A Land of Permanent Goodbyes, I know that you have a very strong journalism background. How are you able to segue and position yourself? Because I took some journalism classes is nothing at all like trained journalism. It's just like, you know, I took some classes here and there. Oh,
1: you're fantastic. You're a great journalist. That's what you're doing right now.
0: I'm so impressed. Thank you. Oh, oh my god. Again, you're blowing up my head. It is too early. I can't you get, get out the talk door. When you
1: in the future, can you make sure that you hire me? Don't forget the little people. Can you be my producer? I would love it. Oh my god, that would be amazing. I would love it. Bring me on.
0: But I mean, from my own experiences, just doing journalism and I also funny enough was taking creative writing classes at the same time in college. And then I remember with journalism, and maybe it's just different styles of teachings, but my teacher is very much like, facts, 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 hard facts. Do not inject your own personality, your opinions. And it's not about that. You have to be as unbiased as possible. And it's hard for me because I can get very opinionated. I'm more of an expressive person. So for me, it was hard facts, hard facts, and going straight to people to interview them, all that stuff. And then going to creative writing classes at the same time as I'm balancing journalism classes. It contradicts each other. Totally contradicts. Yeah. And then my creative writing teacher's like, uh, Yin, you know, it's good the way you're describing things, but we need to hear more of your voice. You see, it just is so jarring. And I'm just like, oh gosh, yes, yes, you're right. It's almost a switch of personalities, at least for me. For you, how did you go from years of being this, again, badass journalist, to then <laughs> segueing into writing stories that you still inject? the truths, but you put it into fiction, but yet you're able to add the storytelling element. And I know journalism is storytelling in its own aspect, but with writing fiction and books, you're allowed to and encouraged to inject more artistry and more of your opinions. And how is that transition that shift for you? That's another great observation and
1: question. My dream was always to write a novel. But the longer I stayed in journalism, and the longer that I was a reporter, I thought that that dream totally faded away. Because as you mentioned, to be a good journalist, you can't use your imagination. If you use your imagination as a journalist, you're not a journalist. In fact, you're a really bad journalist. When I had the opportunity, especially with the first book, that was my first opportunity. I didn't know how I was going to do it because by then I had lost all imagination. I didn't know what I could do to write a novel. So I decided that I don't want this opportunity to slip. So what I'm going to do is write the truth And literally everything in both books are real stories from people that I've spoken to and I've interviewed. And The Secret Sky, The Color of the Mountains that I saw with my own eyes, you know, the smells that I smelled myself. I did the same thing with *A Land of Permanent Goodbyes as I was interviewing people in Lesbos. I was also taking video of the water, writing down what it felt like to feel the cold air on my face, put my hand in the water, just feel how cold it was. So when I described it in the book, it's as accurate as possible. Because my imagination was gone because of my journalism, what I did do is just put in reality as deep and as best that I could from the sparkles on the water that shimmered like diamonds that's real i didn't make it up it's what it is
0: i thought it was super creative where you made destiny, a narrator in A Land of Permanent Goodbyes. When I was seeing that part, I was like, dang, that's creative. I did first person. I did it in Tarek's point of view.
1: I wrote a couple chapters in his point of view, but it didn't feel right. So I rewrote those chapters in a third person narrative, and it still didn't feel right. Because after I went to Lesbos, I also met a lot of volunteers from around the world that were helping and going back to that shared humanity. I was thinking about the people who were out there, the helpers. I talk about the helpers and the hunters in this book, I realized I want a character that's a volunteer as well. I want this to come from different perspectives, from different viewpoints. And that volunteer realizing that in her history, in her recent history, you know, she is a product of immigrants, a product of a refugee. And if we look at the history of humanity, there's no one in this world, not one person, whose ancestors or themselves haven't been touched by migration have been an immigrant in the past even if you say that your family's been in ireland for generations but they came from somewhere before that exactly i thought who better to tell this story than someone or something who has witnessed it and i thought you know what what about destiny destiny was here through it all and will be here after us i call her a she she was here before us She's going to be here after us talk about my husband's grandmother. She was a German Catholic who came to America, and she was targeted by the KKK. She's a blonde-haired woman, white woman, but targeted by the KKK because she was Catholic, and this was several decades ago. Luckily, my husband's family remembers that. They remember what happened to her and threats that she received. And they have an open mind and open heart to people who are going and suffering today. But I'm also reading stories about people who are joining the neo-Nazi movement who were Irish Catholic, who were targeted in the early 1900s. Italians who were lynched in the early 1900s, who are now turning into people who are xenophobic and anti immigrant when their grandparents or great-grandparents went through the hell that the people that are coming today or being prevented from coming today went through.
0: I would love for you to try and boil down just one point that you would love for people to take away from a land of permanent goodbyes. I just hope that anyone who reads it will just
1: decide to open their hearts and minds you know, before it's too late and it's closed for good. It's the one thing that I think can change the world is when we open ourselves up to smile at that stranger that we think we should be afraid of just because she's wearing a hijab or the Mexican immigrant who's spending the entire day outside of a Home Depot looking for a job. These people that are here, they're human beings. Just because they might look a little different than you, might speak a different language they have the same hopes and fears and dreams as us. And a lot of them have it much harder. So instead of snubbing your nose or huffing in their direction, smile at them. That smile might turn their day around, especially after seeing one person after another who kind of giving them the side eye and whatnot. Not all of us have money to help in different ways. Not all of us have the time to go donate and helping refugee families or immigrant families settle in. Something as simple as a smile makes a huge difference.
0: I know you mentioned not everybody has the means to donate to certain organizations. Now, for those who do, who are listening and love to, are there organizations that you recommend? I've been a big fan of
1: IRC, which is the International Rescue Committee. I see them everywhere. I see them doing a great job, and I think that they manage their funds better than some NGOs that I've seen. So I'm a big fan of theirs for the bigger ones. I have a former colleague at CNN who has started her own NGO called Inara. I-N-A-R-A, I think it's Inara.org. um, but. You know, she's been doing these stories on refugees for years and one thing after another. And then she eventually decided, you know what, I need to start an NGO. I'm going to help the kids who've lost legs, limbs, or been burned by different airstrikes or whatnot. So her funds actually go a long way as well in helping people directly affected. And you actually see the people that you're helping to. It's a smaller organization, but it's helpful. I always recommend to reach out to smaller organizations in your cities or in your towns and states. Uh, church groups help refugees all the time. In fact, when my parents first came to America, it was a church group that helped us. So if you reach out to these churches and let them know that you're interested, because I know that a lot of churches have been reached out by the groups who are anti-refugee and are trying to scare them and to stop helping refugees, and that's happening in the D.C. area. I've seen it happen to people that are very close to me. They're Catholic church. They've been attacked by anti-refugee groups, and now they've decided to be a little less vocal about their commitment to refugees they're still helping but they're afraid of being vocal about it so reach out to them and be vocal in saying that no i want to help i want to help you help them you don't have to be religious or part of the religious affiliation to help out they can set you up with a family go have a cup of coffee help them with their english things like that help and go a long way
0: I know you mentioned you brought up Myanmar just now in the conversation, and that was something I read in your bio. My mom's been following everything that's been happening in Myanmar, and she's especially been following Aung San Suu Kyi's works, her movements, her trials. Mm-hmm. In your bio, you mentioned that you had to sneak into the Myanmar's military state and film covertly. Are you able to give us a little bit of a behind-the-scenes? So this
1: is 2009. So a lot has changed in Myanmar since then. So this is what It was still full military state run by the military junta, and they weren't allowing many Westerners inside the country unless they got visas, which was really difficult to come by. And I was living in Afghanistan at the time, and I was going to Hong Kong for vacation because my friend lived there. The CNN Bureau found out I was coming and one of the editors was just like, can you bring your second passport? We're going to try to see if we can get you a Myanmar visa. So I said, yeah, sure. So I brought my passport and... I saw that this editor at the desk had printed out fake business cards for me. Apparently, I was a children clothing buyer or something like that. They were able to get me a visa. And they were like, all right, well, next time there's a breaking story, you know, hopefully you can go. I was like, oh, I'd love to. I always wanted to go to Myanmar. Lo and behold, while I was on vacation in Hong Kong, Aung San Suu Kyi, an American was caught swimming to Aung San Suu Kyi's house where she was under house arrest. I think his name was John... It's how I forget his name. I think it was that. So then I had to sneak in and um, fly in. We had this tiny little satellite that was able to fit in a small box that luckily the authorities didn't see because we would have been arrested if they did. And I was never on camera because... I had to even disguise my voice. It was all done literally under the covers. I I would put a gigantic bed cover over myself while I was talking into the computer as I'm doing right now talking to you. I have no bed cover, but back then I didn't have earphones either. So it was just the computer with my... It was a beautiful country with beautiful people. And it's just so lovely. Unfortunately, right now with what's going on there today, it's breaking my heart, the divisions and the clashes and the xenophobia there as well. I mean, you can't escape it anywhere in the world, unfortunately.
0: That's why doing especially journalism, you have to be so resilient because you're seeing all of these real atrocities everywhere you turn. Exactly, You really are so incredible. Your mind is so strong. your heart is so strong, yet you're still so compassionate and so empathetic. That's kind of you. It just is very rare to find people who've been doing this work for so long. This is not easy work and your life is also in danger. You're an inspiration. I just have to tell you, you're a role model. That's so kind of you. I'm really honored that you were on the show. I'm honored to be on it. So thank you. Thank you. And that wraps up our episode with Atia Abawi. Atia, you are truly a wonder woman. Thank you so much for an eye-opening and unforgettable conversation. I had such a wonderful time with you. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always. Please show your love and say hi to Atiyah on Twitter at Atiyah Abawi and head over to her show notes page at 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash Atiyah dash Abawi. As a reminder, be sure to catch ATIA's Instagram takeover at Instagram.com slash 88cupsoftea. You'll get a sneak peek of her visit to Bangkok, so be sure to tune in. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time, and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before. And we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much in advance for helping us grow our community. And if you haven't yet, don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow writers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week. And I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.